Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. In this episode, we're going to think about the power and strength of neurodiversity, more specifically thinking about ADHD. The guest today, Michelle Minikin, is going to share her own journey of receiving diagnosis of ADHD and how that has helped her utilize her potential and put less pressure on herself to people please and fit into a mold that never served her right. It's a really vulnerable episode, but we also use a bit of sense of humor. So I hope that this can help you understand if you're wondering about ADHD in yourself, that actually it doesn't have to be a curse. Some of it is also a blessing, understanding that you're neurodiverse and actually not been given the right opportunities in life and right support. I hope that at the end of this episode, you can start to treat yourself with more kindness and compassion, knowing that it's not your fault for how your brain has been wired. But also, if you know someone who you suspect may struggle with ADHD or has been given a diagnosis, understanding these patterns and how difficult and subtle it may be for some people who struggle with neurodiversity, this will help you build compassion and kindness and understanding towards them as well. So I hope that this makes sense to you, that there's a lot of things that women with neurodiversity do. Women with ADHD who may feel that they have to hustle to fit in, have to seek the approval of others and constantly feel that they can't quite be who they actually are. And instead they do people-pleasing and get caught up in perfectionism and long cycles of burnout, like you'll hear about in this episode, because they are simply either really focus on something that they're passionate about or get understimulated and may switch off. It's really hard to keep that balance. So now onwards with the introduction of my amazing guest. Michelle Minikin is a chartered psychologist and coach. She's the captain of Work Pirates, which you'll hear more about in this episode. And she's the co-founder of the podcast Inspiration North. She was diagnosed as having ADHD just before her 42nd birthday and suddenly her world made sense. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast, Michelle. It's such an honor to have you here. And I'm sure we'll have some fun with this topic, even though it's a serious and, and difficult and challenging one. I hope that we will also bring some light to some of the strengths and the power of ADHD as well. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you ever so much for having me on, Michaela. It feels Really weird being on this side of the podcasting interview, so you <laughs> have to bear with me a little bit. That's okay, and the, you know, for some of, of the listeners here also know that I've been on your podcast as well, mm-hmm. and for anyone who wants to listen to that episode, it's on the Thomas Connection website under the uh, Listen Resources section. So Inspiration North was my first ever podcast, I Aww. believe, so I was so nervous. So now that you're on the other side, I'm sure you can recognize some of the nerves of sitting there and talking and not being in control of asking the questions, but I will do my very best to ease you into it. Thank you. So why don't we start by telling people a little bit about your story, you know, a little bit about who you are, so they've heard from your bio, 
briefly about what kind of professional qualification you've got, but tell us a little bit more about who you serve and why. You know, why did you train as a psychologist and things you do with Action for Happiness, etc. A little bits and pieces that they need to know about you. So I don't want to go back and like literally give you my life story, but um, my dad was in the army. So we did a lot of moving around when we were little. Um, I'm the oldest of four children as well. <laughs> so um, there was just lots of noise growing up. I did all my primary education in Northern Ireland in the 80s during the Troubles. Um, and we we had to uh, check under our cars with mirrors with these weird extendable poles to check if there was any uh, bombs etc under the cars and I sort of grew up I grew up watching this and thinking this is just not normal and really curious I suppose about why sort of grown men wanted to kill me an eight-year-old a seven-year-old um, and my family so it was a it was always a it was always a curious thing about understanding what what made people do bad things and with that moving around, I always felt very different, you know, being an English girl in a Northern Irish school, having to, to move around a bit, et cetera, et cetera. So Enid Blyton, the children's author, I absolutely loved her books. So I loved her A Secret Seven, Famous Five, Mallory Towers, Sinclair's books. And the, the last two I mentioned was all about boring school. And so I didn't realise until very recently that I was craving structure and routine and so you know dad away mum being you know almost a single parent to three of us at the time it was it was fairly chaotic growing up so I had a campaign from probably about eight year old until I managed to get to go to boarding school when I was 12 to go um, and I absolutely loved it I loved the routine and knowing where I'm supposed to be at what time and all of that kind of life admin being taken away from you and people would you know clean my room and do my laundry I'd love to go back to be fair um but that does sound really good I would also like to sign up for that <laughs> as well goodness going to be here so yes boarding school for adults that could be another opportunity um I, yeah, I loved it. And I, I did quite well, actually, at school until it came to sort of exams, which I probably didn't fulfill my potential. But I just thought it was too much, you know, being interested in boys and friends and you know, partying than exams. So, um, so I didn't really realise why I hadn't done as well as I was predicted for both GCSE and A-levels. But I managed to get through them and sort of early 90s is this tv show featuring Hagrid for those who know Harry Potter um he was a forensic psychologist who worked with the police and solved these really difficult serial killer-esque um crimes using his knowledge of psychology and I was like that's what I want to do so I went through got a place at university to study psychology didn't love it. It was very theoretical, quite, you know, this person said this, this person said that. There was no rules, there was no boundaries, I suppose. Um, so I really, I really struggled. 
And then obviously realising that Cracker was a made-up TV fiction show, it wasn't a real-life thing. The police didn't work with criminal psychologists to catch bad guys, and quite frankly, there weren't very many serial killers, thankfully, in the UK as well. So I got about to join the army. I was like, right, that's you know, that's that's not an option for me, um, because I've, I figured out as well that forensic psychologists pretty much worked with people who'd already been caught in the mains, and I didn't want to work with um, helping offenders not reoffend it didn't it didn't sort of float my boat I'd rather catch rather prevent them in the first place or catch them while they're doing it so I was all ready to join the army and you know please my dad with that and I had to do my dissertation so my dissertation was around um, looking at two groups of people one of which had quite a lot of control about how they could do their work and another that was more kind of you know, blue-collar workers who were pretty much, you know, delivering a process. And looking at the, the sort of stress levels between the both of them, and it was like, ah, oh, if you have more control over your work, then you have less stress. Oh, that's useful. That's interesting. I'd like to know more. And so I just happened to see that... Uh, University, Northumbria University had an MSc in occupational psychology, masters, and I was like, yeah, this is interesting, this is practical, you can help a lot of people with this, and instead of catching bad guys, we're keeping bad guys out of organisations. So I did my MSc, absolutely loved it, loved it, loved it. I found everything really fascinating, (laughs) every single topic, um, and it could all be applied and then all through university and school in the holidays I always had lots of little jobs so I'd worked in pizza shops got paid in pizza which was nice again something we can bring in for adults (laughs) (laughs) boarding school for adults and get paid in pizza yeah and and so I had lots of different jobs I'd worked in America for a bit in a restaurant turns out having AD and looking back having ADHD and trying to do restaurant work in America was really difficult because it's all about where everybody is in the process and holding a lot of information in the brain. Whereas in the UK, we all sort of mucked in and helped each other, whereas you had your own section that you had to do everything for. So that was an interesting realisation this year, actually. And then my first proper, proper, you know, proper job as a psychologist was working for a one-man psychology practice. And I absolutely loved it. The work was really interesting, being able to create things. It was a bit lonely because it was literally me and him and we both needed quiet to get stuff done. So I did spend quite a lot of time on my own, but I learned loads. And I think the number one thing I learned is that I wanted to work for me. So I, ha- I left there because he had a grant to employ me and that, that ran out. So I had to go and find myself at the jobs and I really struggled actually so I find I found work but because they were quite entry-level roles they didn't really know what to do with a psychologist because I was both absolutely brilliant and really bloody awful <laughs> as an employee <laughs> so anything that came to do with you know being you know organized and organizing other people was literally my idea of hell 
Because then you had to bring the organization yourself. Whereas when you kind of, you, you give an examples of two, stru- you know, structural organizations where like the army and a boarding school, to me, sounds like they have in common the mm. sense of strong set of rules, structure, organization, routine. And I guess then when we come into something where we're expected to provide that ourselves, mm. to bring that, is that where you then notice patterns of struggling? Yeah, so getting out of that getting out of that entry-level job that was quite admin, organising, focused, and not a lot of creativity. I was really miserable for a lot of years, actually, because, <laughs> because I, you know, I knew I had more potential. I could offer so much more, but nobody wanted to hear me because I was just the girl that was really rubbish at admin. So, so it's the second time you mentioned around sort of fulfilling potential. You said, you know, mm. I didn't fulfill my potential in, in certain aspects of school. So when, when you are stimulated, when you get to bring the, the, you know, the visionary side, when you get to have creativity, it sounds like you then step up and excel and, and do better mm. than when you are expected to bring organization and structure that, that leaves you feeling short, like you're falling short. Absolutely. And it wasn't until I, I saw a job advert for a one-year fixed-term maternity cover they were putting a a whole new structure in an organization and it was going to be fast-paced and stressful and busy and we had to think outside the box and that was it that was when you know problem solving that was when I excelled and I actually I got the job and I got promoted four times in four years because they saw that potential and you know as soon as you got me away from the admin and I was able to lead and negotiate and problem solve and create good networks of useful people across the organization that could help me get my job done as soon as I could start thinking outside the box that's when my value was recognized you know which was almost kind of life-changing because at that point as well I I had I did my Clifton Strengths find a questionnaire and I and I actually figured out that there was loads of things that I was really really good at and this this job I ended up with I I was able to use my strengths and I had a manager who who let me let me get on with it and offered support and backed me up but I was free to do things my way so that was that was really interesting so now it's really fascinating, Michelle, of how the environment has to be in order for you to thrive, that mm. you're thriving off structure and rules and routine, but also thriving off the balancing out of your really, really helpful strengths and how they can get supported by mm. other members of a team. You know, for instance, an, uh, an administrator bringing the structure and, and taking tasks off you that I imagine that you would otherwise procrastinate. Oh, yeah. I'd be terrible. So I'd do all the problem solving, firefighting at at work, bearing in mind we were working in an open plan office, which is hell <laughs> for a lot of people, and especially for me, because there was always something going on and distractions and interruptions. And I used to do my work at work and then come home and do my, you know, answer the 200 emails I'd get a day at home. So I'd put the boy to bed and then start working again. So I would be working lots of hours and I, I managed to get away with almost sort of secretly promoting somebody in the team to manage the team as well because that managing other people and structuring their work is something I struggle with too 
so so yeah, I was just able. There's like loads of stuff I was able to get away with, which was great, which <laughs> which enabled them to get actual real life value from me. And I stopped thinking myself as being so rubbish because I'd had lots of feedback about how it took me so much longer to do admin tasks and 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 sort of that more manual tasks than most people and I don't understand why it's taking me so long and it took me so long because I had to constantly check my work and then check it again because I was terrified of making mistakes and being criticized and belittled and and that that sensitivity to criticism I have now since learned is a is a thing um rejection sensitive dysphoria and you know, going back to school, the reason that the teachers absolutely love me at school is because effectively school teaches you how to adapt to multiple and sometimes conflicting authority figures. So this teacher wants you to do this and then that teacher wants you to submit your work that way and you can call this teacher sir only and that teacher, you know, it's Mr. Whatever and this other teacher you can call Kevin. It's so understanding and how to how to adapt to authority figures, I was I was really good at. But what I wasn't particularly good at was learning how to influence and challenge authority figures. So that that took a lot of time. And you mentioned that as an example of of people pleasing. Mm, you know, yeah. you you joined the army to please your dad, and I think discussions you and I have had before have kind of uh, highlighted patterns of people pleasing that that was a way for you to cope with the world you know of perfectionism and, and people pleasing became coping strategies yep. can you tell the listeners a bit more about why you now you know the age you are now having been diagnosed with uh, with um, adult ADHD when you look back at your life and some of these coping strategies how do you make sense of them now it's what I had to do to survive so that again it's that good girl conditioning so I, I can't be high maintenance they have to be I had to be low maintenance and cool almost and that adapting to other people and not asking for help and not complaining and and I almost lost myself in trying to be who everybody else needed me to be so it got to a point where I don't even know who I am because I was too busy sort of turning myself inside out to help other people and slowly kind of drowning with a smile on my face, you know, avoiding any kind of conflict or criticism and just like pushing down the emotions so as, as not to be not to be seen as needy or dependent or any of those things that, you know, good girls shouldn't be. So that must have been really difficult because then spending all that time and energy to kind of almost like hustle for those things, to be those things that other people perceived as desirable I suppose mm. that that must have taken a, a lot of strength away from the things that actually were really helpful for you the way that you could shine in the world the way you could have value and contribution but you must have just used all your energy to try to fit in and had mm. no energy left to do the things that were meaningful yeah it was it was it was it was bonkers actually because I'd sit in meetings and literally my idea of hell is to watch people try to figure things out because my brain is really good at spotting patterns and connections and cause and effect and asking good questions. <laughs> and I used to have to sit there and I was thinking, well, they've suggested this. 
it's not going to work in a million years because of X, Y, and Z. But if I say that, then I'm going to come across as a, you know, one of those, um, as, you know, cynical or critical. And because I, I got there quicker than most people, but I couldn't really explain my workings out as well. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, it's not going to yeah. work because of X, Y, and Z. But saying that was probably, I was too scared of criticism and upsetting people and conflict to say it. So I used to find it really, really, really frustrating just to sit there yeah. and watch people think that this is, a, you know, this is a good way of doing things. It's like sometimes it's just not. It must have been difficult then juggling that balance of like, I don't want to break these social norms because I'm really sensitive to criticism. I don't want to be seen as not fitting in or being that kind of overly critical person. But on the other hand, kind of drowning on the inside, feeling frustrated and impatient, thinking we could just done this mm. in 20 minutes. And I think anyone who sat in a, you know, public sector meeting, <laughs> I always just re- recall a lot of NHS meetings. So I'm like, this could have been an email. Mm-hmm. And this is not taking two hours, we could have taken 20 minutes. So I think a lot of people listening who might be identifying as neurodiverse or having question marks around maybe ADHD might recognize that sense of your brain spins so fast, it's difficult to sometimes explain why you came to a place. It's like, you know, mm. a chess game where you can't, you can't tell you why these next three moves need to be made, but that you just feel that they have to be made. Mm. You mentioned the sort of the... Um, the rejection sensitivity dysphoria for those who don't kind of know about that what that means can you explain that a bit more so i didn't even know if it was obviously clearly didn't know it was a thing until i did started doing my research into adhd when i started to kind of suspect i had it but it is it's almost a, a physical reaction to criticism rejection or perceived criticism or rejection so I used to totally go into a almost a tailspin when I received criticism and I have <laughs> I've lost marriages and um friendships and relationships with bosses because I felt criticized and so instead of doing anything about it you know instead of saying look <laughs> I, I, you know, I hurt my feelings because I wouldn't say that because I was all like, you know, low maintenance. I would just sort of moonwalk out of those relationships and leave rather than... So it became more about escape oh, God, rather yeah. than standing off yourself. Yeah. And so, yeah, criticism is, is painful. Yeah, like physically painful. Yeah. It hurts to be mm-hmm. criticised. Yeah. Yep. And that's really important to, to kind of tap into that when we then think of how we find empathy and kindness and compassion for ourselves understanding that this is not my fault this is just a thing that happens in my brain in the neurodiverse brain uh, I guess for those who are not aware of you would think of neurotypical or neurodiverse so people who have typical brains it's like neurodiversity is like being left-handed in a, in a, in a world of right-handed people you know better no worse you just see the world slightly differently and mm. it might sometimes need certain kinds of scissors so I'm wondering how does that feel for you as as an adult and as a psychologist to receive that diagnostic um, assessment and, you know, being given that this is a name for all the things I've experienced in my life? How did that feel for you when you received the diagnosis? It was really interesting. So I, I met somebody who was ADHD and within literally 30 seconds of meeting, I realized that, oh, she sounds exactly like me and she has the same thoughts and I actually love her. Um, and... So I started to do my research and, you know, the whole kind of perfectionism thing was like, 
I uh, I probably did a PhD in <laughs> in ADHD in six months and like learning everything about it. And because I'd been told most most of my I'd gone through lots of cycles of burnout. So one of the the fun traits of ADHD is if something is exciting or interesting or new. I pour a hundred million percent into it and I don't know when to stop because it's it's um, that ability to hyper focus so it leads you to like lots of instances of burnout where you literally can't get out of bed and I, I've been to the doctors multiple times for you know, anxiety depression and I've been referred for CBT cognitive behavioral therapy which does not work with me um doesn't work my brain and that's all that was offered and they tried to put me on antidepressants and I didn't want to go on antidepressants because I knew that the depression and anxiety wasn't the thing so having having this idea that this might be the thing you kind of go through the whole oh I'm just faking it. I, you know, I people think I'm just attention seeking, um, and all of this sort of stuff. So there's, there's, it's, there's a bit of denial and guilt that you know the NHS should be used for more serious things, and my brain being a bit weird. But then getting that relief, that that you know that diagnosis, the relief of that, you know, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Then I'd, I'd gone through my sessions with the psychiatrist, and it was like, right, okay, because you, you, when you go through the diagnosis, you don't, you don't know whether you're just, I don't know, making it up almost, <laughs> because you know you try your best not to be, not to be needy or high maintenance, and so there was there was a lot of relief there, and it was quite exciting to start off with, but then. You look back at your life through this new lens, and you, you this is you know there's so many so many different feelings. So that anger at how you've been mistreated in organisations and uh, former friends, and how I've mistreated myself, and because there's an estimated twenty percent of people are neurodiverse, and that's across the across the different things, you know, autism dyslexia, dyspraxia, Tourette's, etc, etc, etc. And these things don't occur just as one thing as well. So there's so many un- undiagnosed people, which makes me really angry because the world is getting all these people to fit into the world as they see it as such. So this is a really high proportion of undiagnosed ADHD men in prisons um mm. and so that anger it's how unfair the unfair the world is and and a bit of grief as well about those those lost years I had that I could if I'd known my strengths and my needs then I could have done something about it earlier and I think that's I guess it's a really important part of processing their diagnosis for anyone who's listening who's going through assessment at the moment you know kind of leaning into Michelle's experience of how hard it is to be diagnosed in adult age of actually sadness and grief of all the times lost all the times where you could have been better supported where there could have been 
a better understanding from others, but also really ultimately a better understanding from ourselves. That, you know, you said that I'm angry that I mistreated myself. Mm. So many times where you said, you know, you're, like, you're making it up, you're faking it, and all of these different things, the hustling, you know, all the things you were doing to, you know, as you say, it's kind of masking the problems, trying to sort of fit in, mm. uh, using all these coping strategies. Everything from perfectionism to people pleasing to trying to control things. (laughs) I guess there is a real sadness around that. Like Mm. this is just the stuff you had to do to survive, like you said. So I think it's very normal and common to feel a period of sadness or even sometimes depression. Like we actually get really low when being given the, the, the diagnostic label. And I think that's really kind of the key word there is to think about it less like a label, Mm. more like an understanding. Like this is just. A formulation of me. This is just my blueprint, and this makes sense of my strengths and my weaknesses. And in your work as a psychologist, you have to do a lot of strengths finding and those kind of things. How how can we think of the power of ADHD as well as the pain points? It's really interesting. So I, I have this a lot. So it's like oh, you know, everybody has everybody has weaknesses. It's like hmm, yeah, um, <laughs> and it's the power. So I think my ability to look at the world in a different way and that's problem solving skills as soon as there's a problem my brain literally goes into figuring out mode so um my my co-founder my partner James is brilliant with loads of great ideas but as soon as he gives me an idea my brain will not stop solving that problem looking at how to Mm. implement it but you know, I can see, I can very quickly come up with a cunning plan and um, that ability to spot patterns and opportunities and understanding the underlying, underlying the crux of the problem. I can get it. It's like, well, you know, it's bloody obvious what that is. <laughs> and mm. It's like when I'm talking to people, sometimes I'm like, how do you get, how do you get from there to there? And again, that work is explaining my workings out is hilarious really sensitive to other people's feelings so the ability to to empathize with absolutely everybody that you know lots of compassion which obviously previously I used to adapt to them but now I have I have come you know I've pulled away from that now <laughs> understanding that I can have compassion but I don't have, doesn't mean I have to bend over backwards to help everybody and and please everybody and be be a good girl for everybody so that's 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 unlearning and yeah hyper focus and creativity so you know give me a deadline I will smash it and the work will be genius and very productive when it's something fun starting new things and being able to create interesting um, and pretty non-boring things I get yeah get lots of joy in making things look good so that's a real strength to be able to use that passion. I mean, you're painting a picture of passion that there's something when you are lit on fire, you are, you are, you are just all systems go. And I think that that's really important to hold in mind that there is a balancing act to that, that yes, we can talk about the power of ADHD. And I really just want to make sure we don't brush over that actually the same thing that is the power of it can also be the shortfall mm. of it. That's the thing that you've explained the sort of the cycles of burnout that's come from from hyper focus in the past where it's really hard for the brain to stop and I guess there's maybe a link there with overwhelm and exhaustion that a lot of especially a lot of women with with ADHD tell me because there's that 
expectation and pressure to keep delivering that you know it's almost like a different picture for men and women with the ADHD because of the societal norms have you in all of the obviously completely perfect research you've done on on ADHD what have you what have you come across on that around sort of how this is portrayed differently between men and women who've got adult ADHD well it starts you know in children so you know, you're born that way. It's not something you, you know, can catch. It's just how your brain is born. And there's a, there's a you know, very strong gen, you know, hereditary elements as well. So I think if you look at evolution, it's really important that you have the people that can just get on and do stuff. But then you also have those curious, adventurous explorers or would all still be living in caves. So, you know, the universe creating 20% of people as neurodiverse 20% of the global population is a lot of people trying to fit in. So early research was done on you know, naughty boys that couldn't sit still in class and were disruptive and inattentive. And that's not how I experienced my ADHD at all. And I think speaking to a lot of women, it's not physical, that restlessness, that, you know, it's, it's, it's mental. The hyperactivity is mental in your brain. So I used to say before before taking, so I'm on, I'm on medication now, which is, oh my God, it's like totally helped. <laughs> you wouldn't believe people have so, you know, noticed the difference. And the medication has quieted, quieted, whatever that word is, the brain. So before doing, everyone said, oh, Michelle, all you need to do is do some like yoga or meditation. And you know when the yoga teacher goes, so if you notice a thought coming into your brain, just like a cloud, notice it, go by and out of your brain. And I was just placed lie there thinking, hmm, not a cloud, more like a hailstorm of thoughts and suggestions and, and things. And the, the medication has enabled me to actually think which is really weird. I spent 42 of my years reacting and um, <laughs> just just this year being able to think in a much better way and trusting my brain and trusting my wisdom and my, you know, 20-odd years of being a psychologist rather than having to rely on what everybody else thinks. Yeah, really so stepping into yourself in your own right there. The yes. Finding a way of slowing down that, I guess, that the inner, the internalized hyperactivity, mm. the the shattering of the rainstorm rather than the, the odd peaceful cloud. And I guess that's where really important to bring it back to what you said about, mm, well, everyone has weaknesses. Mm, yeah. And I guess I'm picked up in a kind of undertone there of, yes, we all have weaknesses, but the ones that show up for, for, for people who are neurodiverse, and he was talking specifically about ADHD, aren't necessarily socially acceptable no. so it's not just oh i will have weaknesses well we have people who are neurodiverse might feel that they need to sort of shave off their weaknesses or uh, minimize them to better fit into the neurotypical world and that's mm. i guess where we then have an impact on our self-esteem our self-worth the way we have an inner critical voice that says this isn't not enough you're lazy you're not disciplined you're unmotivated all of these things that i would often hear when mm. i worked with women who've had undiagnosed ADHD until the kind of the penny drops that this is not my fault. No. It's just my brain. It's just wired this way. And yes, there are things we can do to try to soften it, you know, a combination of maybe medication and awareness and practicing techniques and skills 
but essentially it's not your fault for yeah. 42 years or so you know you've been on this planet and these things have shown up through no fault of your own and I'm wondering how how has that helped you to come to terms with all that is you you know that the, the pirate queen that I know, um, which brings so much joy and pleasure to other people's lives. Have you now been able to kind of bring some of that pleasure and joy and, and acceptance inwards as well? Yes. So, so I've, had, I've had some coaching. I'm still going through it. Coaching around it. And I've been able to access some support. And, you know, knowing knowing what I need now and understanding that has been like really almost life-changing because it just it just enabled me to be me and now I can let go of so much stuff you know a business that's not doing very well let go of it accountants have totally screwed up your finances get rid of them and instead of just trying to keep everyone happy and understanding that has to be some attract and repel you can't you know you can't please everybody and if you try to you'll please nobody so being able to be more more me um and i keep saying see what i can get away with now (laughs) Um, (laughs) so it's kind of it's better to uh to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. I think that that sort of a, is quite a good statement, isn't it? Where you're kind of daring to push the boat out a bit more. And I guess that brings us on to kind of thinking about work pirates. Mm-hmm. Thinking about breaking the rules a bit more and daring to be who you are and who you want to be rather mm-hmm. than trying to people please and, and be the same mould as everyone else. Tolerating that, yes, you will repel some people with that kind of messaging but you will also attract the real people, you know, your tribe, the people who resonate with your message. So tell people what is Work Pirates and why did you why did you set that up? So it all started. Um, so I've been working for myself since 2016 um, in various guises. And in 2018, I read a book called Be More Pirate, which it was like, it was almost like a come come to Jesus, come home type of moment. It's like, oh my goodness, there are people in the world who think like I think and who really want to make a difference in a good way, um, but by not necessarily following the established procedures for making a difference by you know, being a you know, good citizen and, and all that sort of stuff. It's, it, was really, it was really eye-opening, actually, to to read that and to get to know the author and the captain of Be More Pirate and all of the other people that that book has resonated with. So it's been really interesting. And and I was at that point trying to have a fairly formal uh, psychology practice, almost like how, you know, how a normal psychology practice should be. And all formal and corporate and not me and I really struggled to market it in any way shape or form because it was just too boring um yeah and which would make you not feel stimulated which make you not utilize your potential so we don't want to get into that trap again no but yeah work pirates effectively I had that in the background and and the, the, the be more pirate stuff in the background and then I won a piece of work to do a, a leadership development program 
and it was too much work for just me so I got a couple of my friends to come and help me not just random friends actual psychologists for your listeners <laughs> picked up some people at the bus stop <laughs> you know just pick, yeah pick, pick up random people and yeah. do very important uh mind work to other people yeah no we, we do trust your credentials Michelle don't worry about that <laughs> But yeah, I just and then I realised that it's so much better doing things with other people and more fun. And fun is really important for me in variety. And so I just thought it'd be it'd be fun to to just do consultancy a bit more a bit more differently and actually get to the crux of the problem. And quite you know, over the last couple of years I've realised that psychology and business is very masculine in their, you know, in their research, in their focus, and there's not a lot of feminine in there. It feels really out of balance um, because, you know, the world is designed, built, led by men, and we need to get to a place where the world is designed, built and led by everyone, you know, men, women, neurodiverse people, etc., So Work Pirates, it's all about actually going to the organisation and figuring out what the crux of the problem is and giving people the power to change their own their own work and not swanning in to the C-suite and doing things to people. It's all about doing things with people and, you know, the person closest to the problem is the one that has the solution and, and facilitating those conversations. So there's a lot of unlocking of yeah. what's already there. You know, yeah. Sometimes, I guess people are a little bit too close to the problem, it's hard to see it. But if, if you come in with them thinking of the perception skills you told the listeners about already, of you know, being able to kind of see a few steps forward, being able to see the patterns, being able to see how things fit together, and then helping that other person unlock that for themselves and mm. see actually what do you think is the solution. It must be really empowering for them rather than having consulted see that comes in and like, provides the answer and then they go again you're like well now what how are we going to keep this going what's the maintenance of this so I guess I love the um the route there of finding something that you kind of believed in and resonated with you and for those who are wondering the the author of the book is Sam Conniff and um trying to get him onto the podcast as well he's a very busy man (laughs) so trying to pin him down but um hopefully we get to hear more about what it means to be more pirate and Mm -hmm. and how that could be something that can be life-changing for how we live our lives and letting go of some of these rule following that doesn't serve the purpose that we have and, and the work we want to do in the world so no. each of their own you know it's, it's more important to find something that fits for you and I guess that's kind of when I, when I hear your story brings to mind the the work and research by Brene Brown around mm. how we we hustle to fit in rather than kind of daring to belong that you know if we let go of some of the people pleasing yes we might not please everyone and we might actually have a kickback from that we might have negative consequences but those people were not your tribe and it sounds like you've spent decades coming to that realization that now that you're daring to be more like yourself you're also finding other people who are like-minded and repelling those who are not and that's mm. okay too i know you've done a lot of work also around the um playing big narrative the uh, tara yep. moore book playing big is a fantastic uh, resource for anyone who's not read it yet where there's a lot of talk about the inner critic and you know stepping up and and stepping out into the arena and I guess for a lot of women like you're describing here in the very masculine society not just psychology of course but the you know the 
in the domains that you you were in, then there's so much of that that makes women remain small, doubt mm. ourselves, doubt our confidence, doubt our opinion, second guess, and then let um let men step up and and take the take the place. So yeah, I'm wondering how that's left you feeling how how you've dealt with the that kind of narrative of actually keeping ourselves small versus now working towards playing big. So it's very exciting and also terrifying. Um, so I, I actually three years ago, I a really similar time actually read um, read Tara Moore's um, that the wonderful Wendy Kendall suggested I read, and I thought I love this so much that I'm going to go and train to be a playing big facilitator. So I tried the first year, and the wheels fell off. I, I got really intimidated by the other the other women that were in there because they all seemed much more credible than I was etc so I tried once and failed and I tried again and failed and then I 2020 came around and it was almost now is the time that we've all had to stop and pause and reflect on the world that we had and is this the world that we want going forward and almost that thought propelled me and I made it I made going to each session, it was a Tuesday, Tuesday evening, I made that the default. That was my entire week was around getting through this course I'd paid for two years previously. And I got through, I, I watched all of the, everything live, I've done the exam and I'm just waiting for my results. But I'm desperate to help more humans because the, the playing big stuff actually works with guys as well of course More humans to start you know fulfilling their potential because there is so much wasted potential in the world and we need to do better we need to do better for our children we yeah we just need to make the world a better place so yeah i'm quite fired up about it actually <laughs> I can hear that. And again, sort of the, the theme of passion, you know, when you find a passion, then I guess that anyone who's been listening for a while now knows I'm really, really into P words. So passion <laughs> is a P word in mind that I like, not just like having a P, but P words and passion and potential, but also that sense of progress and persistence that actually coming through to failures and coming back to it again and saying, actually, I am going to do this. I'm going to choose to do this for me. And after realizations through the pandemic, and a lot of my guests have said similar things that the pandemic forced them to slow down, forced them to pause, forced them to come to realizations that were maybe uncomfortable, and then choosing wisely according to what was important, what mattered to them. Mm. And I've heard that a lot in my clinic as well with my therapy clients. So I guess when we're thinking about moving forward, you know, obviously this podcast is <laughs> consisting of three P words, three of my favorite P words, mm -hmm. pause, purpose, and play. And I think we've talked a lot about, I guess, purpose and how much easier it's been for you in your life when you've connected to the purpose of something, when there's been a meaning to it, when there's been, you know, a passion there, then you can easily get going. But I guess mm. having to have that awareness that you can easily go into, um, uh, overdrive that you know balancing yourself out not kind of just living in the fast lane so how do you do then the slowing down the pausing when your brain might be like yes 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 more of this i love this give me more of this and the hyper focus sets in how do you pause how do you switch off well it's <laughs> you would not be surprised to hear that routine so since being on the medication 
my brain works really well almost between sort of 10 and 3 and then after that it just doesn't which is fine and recognizing that that's when my energy is and that's when I should work and stop and I have done this as I stopped doing things on an evening so apart from the guitar and more thing which is on a Tuesday evening I stopped doing anything else on an evening which in terms of like concentrating stuff clearly I do things on an evening I'm a mum I have to have to sort the child out but we we really we, we have a routine now because I you know, strongly suspect my child of having the same the same condition as I have and we, we, we both work well within that routine so we do you know, we, we read together before bedtime and he's good at going to bed now which we struggled for you know most of his life and turning that narrative around so because I was absolutely shattered I you know quite happily would spend like a Saturday on the sofa watching the television and then feeling really really bad about it but turning that narrative around being unproductive and you know lazing around it's not lazy it's de- it's necessary and almost relish that that time to spend literally doing nothing because there's no innovation without without rest my brain doesn't work without play so yeah just an exercise yeah the pandemic stopped me going swimming which has been painful so thankfully the swimming pool's back open again yeah and I think a lot of people have been feeling that that that's you know the way of coping the way of recharging the batteries um especially neurodiverse people that's really struggled because the routines have changed so much all the things that you've established through trial and error that this is what I need to thrive this is what I need to be well and I might be having those complete kind of put the you know press the pause button and kind of as you're saying quote unquote lacing around which is not lacy it's just smart Mm. actually just it's a clever thing to do to help balance out your brain and I've had some amazing guests who've who've talked about different ways of pausing depending on what they do in their work so obviously I sit on my bum quite a bit because I do you know (laughs) online sessions and workshops and things at my desk so my pausing and my playing can be a bit more active I like dancing I like to move and things like that and just skipping around whereas I interviewed a photographer who was constantly on her feet mm. uh, you know on a shoot etc her pause had to be very down regulated so we all kind of have to choose do we up or down regulate and for you where your brain is constantly on mm. then down regulating is really really important and it might be that there's just that permission here's another p word mm-hmm. that permission to say yeah i'm just having an off day and just not doing anything just watching tv me and the boy will just do that and it will help both of you to recover and recharge your batteries so sounds like you've had a lot of unlearnings is the word you used mm-hmm. earlier it's kind of un- unlearning some of these patterns and just choosing more wisely what works for you as an individual rather than following these shoulds Oh, or what yeah. other people think you should be doing and mm. it doesn't really matter if it's not working out for you then it doesn't matter if that should exist in the world so it sounds like you've done a lot to find an individualized tailored approach that suits you balancing routine with rest and and play and what what, what kind of things do you do to play what do you think is fun and rejuvenating i have just started writing a book but it's not a workbook it's a fiction book 
and love it. I've absolutely I've loved the creativity of it. I've literally it's almost I'm writing a screenplay than a book because I have cast the actors and <laughs> um, as well in my head and actually on a spreadsheet because I, I quite enjoy a spreadsheet every now and again and. So, so spreadsheets yeah. for fun. That's uh, yeah, that's it. That's uh, living a life. <laughs> I know. It's, it's, yeah, it's got all the timeline. But yes, I've started writing a, a book, and I like yeah, I love castles. So getting out and about, and you know, tromping through the English heritage and national trust stuff, and going to the seaside and going to the woods. So yeah, being outside, I uh, I've got a nice tent, so as much sleeping outside as possible, really. I have been toying with putting it up because the weather's got nice. Um, so, yeah, just out and about with um, family and friends. But then I do like to spend a little bit of time on my own catching up with Grey's Anatomy. Oh, yes, that's always good. <laughs> a little bit of drama. Yep. And you and you and James have been very avidly sort of into your uh, your walking as well, you know, kind of the the ten thousand steps and things like that. And, and how you've how you've kind of imp- seen the impact on your mood from all that walking? It's again, it's making it a routine. So if it's not a routine, it's an absolute ball ache. <laughs> but as long as we've sort of got a routine, and that that works, and it's all scheduled into the diary. Because if it's not in the diary, it doesn't get done. But yes, it's 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 good creative brainstorming time as well and so we meet our coach for for walking coaching sessions as well which is good because you're not stuck sitting opposite people and having to take all of that attention and focus it's it's good being out yeah but now it's it's fun it's fun being outside and exploring and it's given some purpose to exercise during the whole pandemic lockdown hokey cokey yeah it's hard to kind of um it's hard to keep that focus and keep going with things i mean i've seen i don't know if you've seen that meme of that uh, the bald eagle that's out walking and it looks really cross and it just says i'm just out on a you know stupid walk for my stupid mental health and it sort of <laughs> captures how everyone's been feeling in the pandemic where we know that it's helpful for our well-being or for our mental health and our physical health to go for walks but it's really hard to keep that purpose when you feel like mm. there's no direction, there's no aim for this walk. I'm just going in the same loop over and over again. Again, anything that becomes mundane or boring can be difficult. But it's also joy in some ways in finding a structure of routine. So it sounds like you've also discovered lots of fun places and there's been some pleasures in there, like mm. going somewhere for having a nice like, nice afternoon tea or a cake or something. And it's kind of I'm just seeing on Facebook all the fantastic views from all those walks. So yeah. it's been like vicariously taking the joy from your trips. Yeah, so it's been we, really lovely. We tend to find a good bakery and uh, go for walks around there. So yeah, we're, we're based up in Newcastle. So we get up to Felton in Northumberland and Corbridge. And yeah, so it's like, where is their cake? Are we going north, south, east or west for cake today? <laughs> your cake compass. I love it. It's not just like you're, a, you know, you're a, your true north or inspiration north, as your podcast is called. It's not just like finding your true north. It's like your cake north. Where's the cake yes. compass taking okay. me today? We should take people on a cake tour. Yeah. yeah. I feel we better draw things to a close before we have just completely lost it, which I can think would be imagined would be really fun as well. Mm. But um, it's been fantastic to have you on, Michelle, and for you to share so vulnerably 
about your journey and also really, really liberating to hear a psychologist say ball ache on a podcast. I love it. (laughs) Love it so much. It's a true testament to your kind of all the work you've done with yourself, all the coaching and inner work and growth you've had that's then translated your potential into something beautiful through all the different projects you're involved in. So I want to ask you where people can find you. But before we do, what's the final little kind of gift you want the listeners to take away? You know, if there was a permission to give them or a pressure to take off them, what would it be? I think it's other people's expectations. I think you know what you want. And sometimes you might be a little bit afraid of what you want but it's more important to listen to yourself than other people and if other people don't get it then that's actually not your problem um Mm. so yeah it's all about you do you so it's that permission to be who you want to be and do the things you want to be and letting go of the pressure to fit in and people please other people when those new own expectations and hopes and wishes don't meet those of others. So thank you so much for sharing that. And for anyone who wants to find out more about you or want to work with you or wants to have some coaching with you, where, where would they find you? So the best place is LinkedIn. I'm on there quite a bit. So yeah, LinkedIn. And there's not very many Michelle Minikins, so that's quite good. I think there are three in the world that are counted so far. So yeah. And luckily, there's a picture that we've obviously got. Um, it, with the picture itself is very pirate as well, so you will see the picture of the of the graphics for the for this episode, and you can then match that picture together with the right Michelle Minikin yep. on LinkedIn. Yep. And I'll put that profile uh, link to to your LinkedIn in the show notes as well. Cool. And it's been fantastic to have you on, and thank you so much for coming on as a guest. It might be. Three years, two years? Oh, how long ago it was that I was on yours? It's a while ago now. So, uh, for anyone who wants to listen to the Inspiration North podcast, you can also find that on all the major platforms. And the episode that I did uh, for Michelle and James, where you also hear me saying some Swedish stuff because mm-hmm. James has a hidden talent of speaking some Swedish, you can then go to the thomasconnection.co.uk to find it in the resources section where you can. Um, listen to the the, the previous uh, recording we did there. So thank you again a million times for coming on today. Thank you ever so much for having me. That was really lovely. At the end of this conversation, I'm really thinking how many women I know who may have struggled with these patterns their entire lives where depression, anxiety, stress, burnout, perfectionism, people-pleasing were never really the cause were never really the thing to treat, but they were the symptom of the underlying neurodiversity that wasn't recognised and discovered. If you feel that this sounds like you, that you have been getting caught up in these patterns of overcompensating or maybe masking something going on underneath, don't hesitate to speak to someone about getting an assessment. You can speak to your GP for a referral to a specialist, but there might be quite a long waiting time for that, so you can also pursue private options. If you feel that you are often getting caught up in these sort of patterns of overwhelm where your brain is never really quite calming down, but you don't really think that this is necessarily to do with neurodiversity or ADHD, then you can also go and download my free resource to help you calm the overwhelm by going to thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. And until I speak to you next time, do try to take care of yourself.
Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically, showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www.thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. So that's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas. And you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.